0: Genesis 20, beginning in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of, his, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in the dream, "'Yes, I know that you have done this "'in the integrity of your heart, "'and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. "'Therefore, I did not let you touch her. "'Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, "'so that he will pray for you and you shall live. "'But if you do not return her, "'know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours.' "'So Abimelech rose early in the morning "'and called all his servants and told them all these things. "'And the men were very much afraid.' the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned to Sarah, his wife to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. And the Lord had closed all, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your true and powerful word that has proceeded from the mouth of God. And that we not only hear today, Lord, but desire to obey. God, teach us what your word says, not just. The word's on the page, Lord, but teach us what your word would say by your spirit to us today. As a church, as individuals, as friends, as family, as husbands, as wives, as children. Lord, teach us today. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged, Lord. Exhort us where we need to be exhorted, God. We wait attentively to hear your voice trusting you in all that you desire. We pray all of these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever had the experience where things were so bad that you cried out either to yourself or or sometimes as I do in my car, just shouting to the darkness or, or, or praying to God, God, what did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening like this? Why are you allowing this? What did I do to deserve this difficulty? I can't help but read this and, and think that that must have been how Sarah felt. God, what did I do? <laughs> why, is this, why is this happening again? What did I do to deserve this? Can you imagine the scenario? Sarah is 90, 90 years old in this story. And her husband, the chosen one of God, through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here is his wife, again, traded into the arms of another man. Now I keep saying again, if, if you've been with us for a while, you remember Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham was sojourning in Egypt and because of it, his, his wife's beauty, he decides to, to tell everyone that she's his sister and she uh, gets the attention of Pharaoh and Pharaoh decides that he wants Sarah. And so here he tells Abimelech that she is his sister and, and in a way, she is, she's a half-sister, so this is a half-truth. And as much as it might offend our sensibilities as a modern culture, these, this kind of thing happened in the ancient world. And so she catches the attention of King Abimelech, and he takes her as his wife. Think about that wedding. The entire community would be there, no doubt. Celebrating that their king is, you know, adding another trophy to his harem. Celebration and and dancing. There's Abraham. Who would have to be at that wedding. As Sarah's brother, without her father in the picture, Abraham would have been the one responsible for entering into that marriage covenant in the ancient world. And so he no doubt is sitting in a place of honor at his wife's wedding to another man. And I have to imagine the the look on his face or the knowing glances like, honey, just keep it together. Don't blow it. Just doing everything they can to keep up appearances, to not have this lie exposed. And all the while he has to know he's, he's blown it again. See, Abrams experienced God's faithfulness to him time and time again. This, this, this first time it happened in Genesis chapter 12 was almost 25 years before this scenario. And yet old habits die hard and it's it's happening again. He's slipping back into this, this fear and this faithlessness. And so he deceives, he manipulates, and he trades away his wife to another man in order to get the thing that he truly values, which is safety. What Abraham truly values is security. He is afraid for his life and he thinks that it is worth it to give away his wife in order to have that little slice of security. Now, this situation seems extreme to us. It feels like something like this could never happen in our world today. It's difficult to comprehend how this kind of savagery in the world would be possible. But I believe, and I'm, and I'm going to use a, a universal Generalization. I believe that all of us, each and every last one of us, has either, one, been guilty of the same thing that we see in Abraham, or two, been the victim of the same thing that Sarah experiences. Now let me explain. Because what is happening here, at the heart of it, is a continuation of what we saw last week in Genesis 19. If you remember, the men of Sodom saw the divine visitors as objects for their pleasure. Lot saw his daughters as objects to be traded away for those visitors Safety And Lot's daughters saw their father as an object to satisfy their need for a lineage. Everyone is being used and used by and using one another in the passage. And in our text today, Sarah is treated as an object, something to be traded away, bought and sold to satisfy the desires of another person. Abraham uses his wife to gain security and Abimelech uses Sarah as another trophy in his trophy case to exalt his own glory. See, in life, we have been guilty, all of us, of objectifying other people and we have also been victims of being objectified by others. Some more than others, Human beings are constantly in danger of being treated as resources to be consumed as desired. But as we'll see today, humans are not resources. I remember one of my first jobs was working at the Alisal Guest Ranch in Solvang. And uh, during my training there, I had to report to the human resources department. And I remember on my way over there, I'd never worked for a company large enough to have an HR department. And this was the first time I'm hearing this phrase. I'm walking over there and I'm like, human resources. Like, that's such a weird thing. And then I thought about it. I was like, you know what? Okay, like companies have all kinds of resources. We've got financial resources. We've got technological resources. You know, office supplies are resources. I guess humans are resources. And I, I remember thinking for some reason, this, this thing came into my head and I was like, Am I not more than a stapler to this company though? Like just like a stapler with a heartbeat or something like to many companies, you know, as much as companies want to honor their employees and they want healthy employees, most of the time they want healthy employees because they want healthy resources, which will add to their bottom line. For the most part in companies, you basically equate to, The difference between the money you cost the company and the money you bring in for the company. You're a a, a number. Now, it depends on companies too, obviously. It depends on who you work for. It is interesting though, that in 2023, I believe there has been somewhere along the lines of 360 union strikes affecting more than 450,000 Americans, which is 10 times the number of people affected by union strikes in previous years. People are tired of feeling like resources. And then we give the human resources department the responsibility of making sure all of our employees are treated with dignity and respect. And they don't see the irony. No offense to those of you who work in the HR department. What you do is good work. Keep it up. Show dignity and respect to your employees. Humans are not resources to be consumed. We're not tools to be used. We're not a means to some other desired end. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world, that was not understood. In the ancient Near Eastern world, most of the religious philosophies believed that human beings were created by the gods to be slaves to them. The gods were tired of having to go out and produce their own food. And so they made human beings to work the ground and the sacrifices that they burned were to feed the gods. And then they had people in their community who were of such significant uh, power and influence. uh, Their their kings and other noble people who were said to be the image of the gods. And because that king was the image of the gods, we talked about this back in Genesis chapter 1, they believed that they got to treat humanity like the gods treated humanity. They got to treat them like resources like objects to serve their own glory, to serve their own passions. And so this wasn't, there wasn't the idea of all humanity being made in the image of God. There was no Geneva Convention. There was no one to establish the personal rights and freedoms and value of every individual Person And today, even if we don't ascribe to this ancient pagan religious philosophy, it is almost as though we are still trying to do what those ancient kings were doing by trying to build up for ourselves and exalt ourselves by the use and objectification of other people. Now, there's obvious examples of this. There's obvious examples of... Uh, the, the, the treating of human beings as objects in slavery in our nation's past. Or human trafficking of today. I don't know why we don't just call it what it is. The euphemisms, they bug me. It's slavery. And in the past, it was a, it was a race thing. And today it affects countless people across the world. And in our country, mostly women and children being used for vile things, being used as objects for some other desired purpose. But consider also the porn industry, raking in billions of dollars every year, selling the objectification of human bodies, teaching men and women that the human body is nothing more than an object of pleasure. And it doesn't stop there, it affects the brain and it teaches people how to view one another. It teaches people not just in that genre, not just in the the genre of of sexual desire, it teaches people to look at one another as something to be used for their pleasure. Psychology and, and, and sociology has proven this time and time again and there's an outcry against the industry you are ruining our brains. You're ruining the way that we think about one another. But the objectification of human beings doesn't only exist in these more scandalous areas. Um, I had the, the privilege of serving in pastoral ministry for 12 years in Los Angeles. And in LA, the very first question I was ever asked after, what is your name? is what do you do? There's an obsession with what someone's occupation is, what their career is. And if your uh, occupation, your career, your status, your influence is not seen as something personally, immediately beneficial to that person, that's the end of the conversation. It's the end of the relationship. But if you are a producer, if you're a potential investor in my new startup, then instantly, best friends. So I always loved going to either Christmas parties or parties at friends of non-believers and I'd meet new people and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. I'm like, cool. (laughs) End of the conversation. People enter into marriages because of how the other person makes them feel. And when they stop making them feel that way, well, the marriage doesn't work anymore. Marriage wasn't based on the love of the other person. It was based on the love of what that person could do for them. Parents view children in this way, living vicariously through their child's glories and being embarrassed when their child doesn't do something the way they think they should do. Or employers and employees. Or the wait staff at a restaurant. Yes, they are there to serve you, but that doesn't mean they are a servant. They're a human being. And often we do this without realizing it. It's just the way our brains work. And often we're victimized by it without even realizing it. Because it's just what we've become accustomed to. We learn to live with it, conforming ourselves to the expectations of others and trying to maintain our relationships by earning love by being what other people want us to be. We are made to find our dignity. We are made to find our value and our worth, not in the opinions of others, but in who God is and what he has done for us. And I believe that God wants to restore your dignity today. Believe that God wants to restore to you a sense of value, a sense of worth and honor and dignity that maybe has been taken from you. Maybe you have sacrificed. Maybe you've learned to live with it, but God wants to restore to you the dignity and an honor and a value, a sense of worth that can never be taken never be sacrificed, can never be lost. God wants to restore your dignity today. Notice in the text that he does not delay in Sarah's case. Okay, she's traded away. She gets married and and immediately God takes action. He prevents Abimelech from touching her, he says. And before he has the opportunity to consummate the marriage, God afflicts Abimelech with some sort of, of uh, illness that later in the, in the chapter says he had to be healed from, that Abraham prayed for him and he had to be healed from. And most commentators believe that this was some sort of illness or malfunction that prevented him from being able to approach and know Sarah, if you remember our conversation from last week. And so God protects her from that violation. And essentially God comes to Abimelech and warns him in a dream after creating a a place of protection and warns him in a dream, says, you are a dead man because you're married to another man's wife. And if you don't return her, you and your entire line is going to die out. This is another reason why, why most people believe that what was happening uh, when it says that, that God closed the wombs of all of Abimelech's ladies, uh, it was not something that he did to the women. It was something that he did to Abimelech to prevent them from getting pregnant. And so that would mean that not only Abimelech would die, but when he died, his entire line would die out. His entire lineage was in trouble. And so he's freaked out. he wakes up early in the morning and responds immediately. He confronts Abraham. He returns Sarah and he gives them gifts, sheep and oxen and servants, speaking of objectification of humans, and as well as 1,000 pieces of silver. Which, interestingly, is more valuable, more money than anyone in this era would have been able to make in a lifetime. Gives him 1,000 pieces of silver. Now, if you remember back to Genesis 12, we have to understand this in the context of the previous time that it happened. Pharaoh did a similar thing, right? He was afflicted with plagues. And he sends Sarah back to Abraham and, and, and sends them away and sends them away with gifts, tons of wealth. And I'm like, dude, this guy lied to you, manipulated you, sold his wife into slavery to you, and you're, and you're blessing him. What in the world is going on? Well, this, this text actually gives us a little bit of an insight into why these guys keep doing this. God tells Abimelech that Abraham is a prophet and that Abimelech needs his prayers to heal him of whatever affliction has come upon him and his family. And so God single-handedly, in one action, he protects Sarah, he restores their marriage, and he is still able to bless Abraham even when Abraham has committed time and time again these terrible things. Abimelech is trying to appease Abraham. He's giving him these gifts because he still needs him. He needs his prayers. He needs his intercession. And as we saw when Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah, interceded for the righteous in there, now we see him interceding for this Gentile king and bringing healing to him and his family. But interesting, this 1,000 pieces of silver. Abimelech says that it is a sign, speaking to Sarah, of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Somehow this financial gift was a sign, not only to Sarah, but to everyone. In the eyes of everyone, you are innocent. You have been vindicated. See, this is hugely important for the, 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 the people of God, the ancient Israelites. As they're reading this passage, they know that they are descended from Abraham through Abraham's son, Isaac, who was yet to be born. We'll read about the birth of Isaac in the very next chapter. And if there was any suspicion that Isaac belonged to Abimelech, the entire uh, uh, belief and the entire claim to the Abrahamic blessing would have been lost. This is an incredibly significant and important thing that Abimelech never touched her. And by giving her this money, he is honoring her And showing to everyone else that any child that may be born from this person is not mine. She is innocent. She is vindicated. She is proven to be whole and restored to Abraham. Now, unfortunately, this restoration is not coming. This this honor has not come from her husband. It's not even really come from Abimelech. This restoration, this honor, this vindication is coming from God. It's God who is the one who came to her rescue. And in the Bible, it's not like the ancient pagan philosophical understanding. In the Bible, humanity is not God's slave, but God's image. Not just the king, but everyone, each and every human being is made in the image of God. He gave human beings this remarkable ability to reflect God to the world. As we go about the regular business of of working the ground and building families, the world is supposed to look at humanity and say, this is what God is like. But our sin distorts that image. Sarah was of remarkable value, not just to Abraham, but to all of humanity. Because it was through her that the promised son was to come through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. But Abraham's sin distorted that value that Sarah was given. And sin has distorted the value and the image of God in us and much of our efforts in life are an attempt to restore that value and restore that dignity ourselves. But unfortunately, the way we do it is often by taking dignity from others. By using them to serve us, by using them to advance our purposes and we put the dignity of other people in jeopardy and so there's this cycle of recognizing the, the, the dignity deep down, this dignity that I was made for, and yet this, this reproach that I feel. And so we're trying to take, and we're trying to find security, and we're trying to find value, and we're trying to build an identity for ourselves. And so I'm gonna post this picture to social media, but not that picture. Or I'm gonna say this thing and not that thing. I'm gonna be friends with this person, but not that person. I'm gonna associate with these companies, but not those companies, because I want everyone to know that I am this way and not that way. I'm a good person, not a bad person, all of these things. And it's just this attempt to build up for ourselves, some sort of feeling like we can be okay with us. Now, whether or not you immediately identify with Abraham or Abimelech, Maybe, maybe you, you look at the way you have treated other women in your life, or men in your life, or the children in your life, or whoever is most vulnerable in your life. Maybe you can look at that and go, oh, man, that's not who this person is supposed to be. There's so much more valuable than that, and I've been, I've been, been using them to advance my agenda. Or maybe, maybe, like Abimelech, you're like, look at my trophy. I don't misuse them. I, I, I polish them. I put them on a pedestal and I want everyone to see how awesome I am by looking at that person. It's, it's really not any different. Or maybe you identify with Sarah and you can look at your life and you just see a laundry list of people that you feel like have taken advantage of you, hurt you, scarred you, abused you. Look, in a room of this size, this is why I can be universally general. All of us can experience this. Maybe some of you are trying to push things out of your mind because it's too painful or too shameful. But all of us have experienced either what it's like to be on the objectifying side or the objectified side. There are three truths that all of us, regardless of what side we feel like we most identify with, there are three truths that all of us need to receive today that are rooted in the image of God. First, your dignity does not come from what you do or what you have done. Your worth, your value, your honor as the image of God, as a child of God does not come from anything you have done, good or bad. Your reputation in God's eyes, your your status is not defined by the good things or the bad things that you have done. It's not in your past. It's not in your occupation. It's not in your circumstances. Listen, even if you are very proud of what you have done, your identity still does not come from what you do or from what you have done. And here's the danger in this. If you live by your performance, you will die by your performance. If your successes are your identity, Then, the moment those are shaken and you experience something that's not success or not how you want to be known, because you've been attaching your identity to those things that are good, you will naturally attach your identity to those things that are bad and it'll all come crumbling down. Your dignity does not come from what you do or what you have done, not your successes, not your failures not your sin. Your identity is in the image of God, and that can't be taken from any human being ever. Second, your dignity does not come from what has been done to you, or your reproach does not come from anything that has been done to you. Because of sin, And the sin in this world is so severe and betrayals and violence, so despicable. Many people today live like they are damaged goods. Like they are broken, like they are dirty, like they are unlovable and irreparable. And they live like nothing can change that. That once this thing has been done to me, once I have experienced this, I will never be the same again. I will never be able to be loved again. I will never be able to be whole again. I will never be able to be free again. That the the light in my life is now just a little dimmer because this has happened to me and nothing can ever change that because my dignity and my honor and my self-worth is affected by this thing that someone else has done to me. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. You are not the sins of another person. You are not your own sins. You are not the sins of another person. God never took his eyes off of Sarah. He never said, can't even look at you anymore. He responds immediately, comes to her aid, rescues her. And it's in that pursuit of God in her that we see her true value. And likewise, your dignity, it does not come from what you do or what you have done. It does not come from what anyone has done to you. It comes from what God has given for you. Your dignity, your worth, your value, your importance, your significance to God and to this world comes from what God has done for you. Think of it. The value of something is typically determined by what someone is willing to pay in order to acquire that thing. It's like when my children come to me and they say, my Pokemon card, it's worth $5,000. And I say, yeah, prove it. And they show me eBay and they show me what the price that someone is asking for it. But then if you look and you can do this, you click the, to see only the items sold, $9. That's all anyone was willing to pay for this thing. Or like many of you have probably experienced, your Beanie Babies are not worth what people said they were. Gen Zers, Beanie Babies were a scam in the 90s. You missed it. Something is, the value of something is determined by what someone's willing to pay for it. Well, then, Abraham was willing to trade Sarah for security. But God traded his son for you. Jesus traded his life For you, Jesus poured out his blood. What many have said is the most precious substance in all of humanity, in all of existence, in all of the universe. Willingly, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I give it up of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to pick it up again. Jesus lays his life down, pours out his blood, gives the most precious resource in all of the universe so that he can have you. If his blood were currency, you are priceless. In the eyes of God, and if God believes it, that is what you are. If God has decided in his mind that you are priceless, that is what you are, regardless regardless of what you think, regardless of what anyone around you thinks. God has bestowed upon you a dignity and an honor, a value, a worth that cannot be acquired by any other means. Your value, your worth, your dignity is in the fact that Jesus has given everything for you. Now, realistically, some of us may see ourselves in Abraham. Some of us may see ourselves in Sarah. Some of us, like Abraham, we may recognize this this sin in our hearts. Some of us, like Abraham, might be struggling with some different sin, but we find ourselves in the cycle. It keeps happening. You have a as he, he has this sin back in Genesis 12. You have your own Genesis 12. You have your own sin that just keeps cycling in your life and you're trapped in this struggle. Or maybe you feel prisoned, imprisoned by the way other people treat you. Both of us may ask, God, where are you? Where, where, where are you in this? Why? Why haven't you delivered me from this cycle of sin? Why haven't you delivered me from this prison of of other people's expectations and other people taking from me? God, where are you? Today, you know that that God is on the cross. That's where he is. He did not delay. He didn't waste time. 2,000 years ago, he paid for the sin that you're struggling with now the sin that you'll struggle with tomorrow and in the future. He paid for that sin to forgive you and he bestowed on you a dignity 2,000 years ago that could never be taken from you. Today, tomorrow, or at the end of your life. It can't be taken from you because God is on the cross and on the cross, Jesus proves your worth to God and on the cross, your sin is forgiven. Nothing can take that from you. And God's not gonna trade you in for a new model. He's not gonna get frustrated with you and abandon you. You're not just decoration on his mantelpiece. You are loved, you're cherished. You're never to be traded away. And it's only when our dignity and our value are rooted in this un a damageable truth, This, this truth that can never be taken away from us. Only when it's rooted in Jesus, are we actually free, not only to stop objectifying others, but actually free to start loving others. See, if objectification is taking someone and using them for your purposes, then love is what Christ did when he laid down his life and served what you need and your glory, and your beauty, and your wholeness, and your health, and your value. Husbands and wives don't use one another for their happiness. They sacrifice their lives for the other person's happiness. And in doing so, both people have what they need, and no one is consuming from the other. It's called intimacy. It's called oneness, self-sacrificially serving the flourishing of the other person. It's love. And it's only when our identity is rooted in Jesus that we are able to love, not just our spouses, but everyone that we come in contact with. When you already have eternal riches and security, you don't need to cling to them in order to build a life for yourself, but you can use them to serve and restore others who do not have what you have. This is why the apostle Paul instructs the church in one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament, favorite passages, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't let that be wasted on you. Paul actually believes this is possible. To regard others as more significant than Than yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This this idea, this way of thinking regarding others more significant than yourselves, looking not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. this, This comes to you because of the mind of Christ that you have through faith. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. It is because of what Jesus has done for us in sacrificing for us in serving us that not only restores us to God, but actually changes the way we relate to one another. We can humble ourselves if God has humbled himself to serve us and to give his life for us, then how much more should we serve one another likewise. Romans 12:10 says, "Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor." Outdo one another in showing honor. Our mission, our purpose, not just when we gather on Sundays, but throughout our lives, throughout our days, is to outdo, if there's any competition between us, it's to outdo one another in showing honor, to love and to show dignity and respect to one another. Jesus restores our dignity so that it can't be taken away. Not just so that we can feel good about ourselves. But so that it changes the way we live. And this is why the church was such an enigma in the first century. You had sitting in a same Sunday gathering. You had wealthy people and slaves. People at the upper echelon of society. And those who had nothing. And they called each other brother and sister. And it wasn't a lie like when Abraham did it. They believed that it was true. Children of God. They shared with one another the same status. Sinner saved by grace. And when we live this way too, the culture will not understand us, but they will be desperate for that same truth that elevates those who have no dignity and makes equal brothers and sisters, regardless of our experiences, makes whole broken people and makes a family out of everyone in this room. Heavenly Father, that is our belief that you, by what you have done, not only reconciled us to yourself, but to one another. As our brother Kyle was even sharing about home groups and what those are about earlier today, the reason we can show up into one room and worship and, and and honor you and honor each other is because we're all in need. And you've given us all everything through faith in Jesus. God, I pray that in our time of response, as the, as we celebrate communion, as we worship, as, as, as the prayer ministry takes their place on the, on the sides of our gathering space, Lord. I pray that for those of us who are convicted by these things, by the way that we have victimized people and those in this room who feel like they've been objectified and and abused, Lord. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would accomplish in us the things that we need, Lord. Repentance for those who are experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit and joy restored to those who maybe have not been able to worship freely for a while because of what they've experienced. God, would you set us free so that we can all celebrate and worship you with joy and freedom today. In Jesus' name, amen.